0: to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 29th October with me, Ian Welsh. Bumper episode this week. A bit later are some highlights of a webinar we broadcast a few weeks ago live from the Kasegau Corridor in Kenya. I spoke with key people involved in and benefiting from a Red Plus project that protects over 200,000 hectares of forest and supports social programs that impact around 120,000 people. Also coming up is a conversation I had with Apparel Insider editor, Brett Matthews about some of the allegations of unfounded sustainability claims that have been circulating in the apparel sector. And we also have Innovation Forum's Narni Brook-Adeel with an update on the upcoming Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference. First up, though, is some sustainable business news. The COP26 news frenzy continues to dominate, unsurprisingly given the importance of the deliberations in Glasgow kicking off next week. Crucial to good outcomes are the commitments from the Global North to fund the climate-related projects in the developing world that are going to be necessary. The aim is to get this to $100 billion a year, something that has not yet been achieved. The OECD says that $80 billion was available in 2019, others say the amount was significantly lower. However, the recently published COP26 Presidency Climate Finance Delivery Plan, which gives a detailed chronology of how the goal will be met, predicts that the $100 billion target will be achieved in 2023, and then each year thereafter. Perhaps a case of too little too late? Time will tell. The race to net zero continues apace, and now it seems to be time for countries on the emissions knotty step to set out their plans. First up, Australia, which has been accused of significant foot dragging around climate change. The country's per capita emissions are among the highest in the world. The new national plan is for net zero emissions by 2050 via a 26-28% to cut by 2030. However, the devil seems to be in the vague detail. A third of emissions cuts will come from technology that does not yet exist and 20% will be met through offsets. Raising eyebrows even further was the announcement from Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman that the country is targeting net zero emissions by 2060, while at the same time stressing the continued need for hydrocarbons and oil market stability. Saudi Arabia's route to net zero includes its circular carbon economy programme and through membership of a global initiative that aims to cut methane emissions 30% from 2020 to 2030. There has been some evidence of a shift of approach in the kingdom, with renewable energy facilities coming online this year, and plans for a $5 billion investment in a plant to produce hydrogen. Ultimately, if the rest of the planet is moving away from oil, then Saudi Arabia and the other heavily oil-dependent economies may end up having little choice but to make the same pivot themselves. One of the focuses of the plastics pollution debate has been the continued role of the petrochemical industry in supplying the feedstock required for plastic products. A new report on the role of the industry in the production of plastics in the U.S. from the Beyond Plastics Group says that while plastic waste hits the headlines, not enough attention is paid to emissions related to plastic production. This will become more impactful than coal in the U.S. by 2030, the report says. Typically, shale fracking is the method of choice, creating the gases necessary for plastic production, such as ethane and methane and fracking processes currently emit 36 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent each year, the same as 18 500-megawatt coal power stations. The process of then cracking ethane to create ethylene and polyethylene is also highly energy intensive, releasing a further 70 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent in 2020, which is the same as 35 coal power stations. Beyond Plastics highlights that dozens of new plastic-making facilities are being constructed in the US, particularly in the southern states of Louisiana and Texas. How all this fits into the U.S.'s own net zero by 2050 commitments is unclear. While a lot of apparel brands and their suppliers have been doing some great work, a matter that's been brewing in the sector over the past few months has been allegations of sustainability related claims that are unfounded and a general sense of greenwashing. To find out a bit more, I spoke with editor of magazine and website Apparel Insider, Brett Matthews. We're going to talk a bit about the challenges for fashion and apparel brands around the rise and rise of allegations of greenwashing. I mean, this really started for me and and I reported on the Innovation Forum podcast about the Changing Markets Foundation report from earlier this year that said that 60% of claims by European fashion brands were unsubstantiated or misleading. So what are you seeing at Apparel Insider on the greenwashing allegations right now for apparel brands?
1: I think greenwashing generally as an issue in fashion has been bubbling away for years, really. So it's not a new thing. Why it's been talked about a lot more now recently is because, first of all, governments around the world have started looking at it. In the UK, for instance, the Competition and Markets Authority recently announced that they were going to clamp down on greenwashing. And they they did a scrape of websites and found that X number of websites in fashion were making unsubstantiated green claims. A similar authority in the Netherlands has done a similar thing and they've found similar results about fashion and unsubstantiated claims being made. And also at European Union level, we're having a lot of talk about clamping down on green claim and green textile labelling so that fashion would need to put clear labels on clothing to tell consumers how the goods were produced, what they're made of it, etc. It's been around for a long time, but suddenly it's become a regulatory issue, which means that brands can't, fashion brands can't ignore it any longer.
0: I was just doing a bit of thinking about this before we spoke, and I saw a report in Which PLM, the online apparel magazine, talking about the rise and rise of sustainability as a marketing tool, and they've done some research and reporting a five hundred percent increase in sustainability language. In US fashion brands marketing and 600% in UK brands marketing since 2019. So it certainly indicates that brands have cottoned on that consumers want to see the sort of language being used when they're buying apparel brands. So that seems to me to be perhaps one of the driving factors behind it. What do you think about the new European product environmental footprint labeling? I mean, how is that going to impact the sector?
1: One would hope it would be in a positive way, given that it's coming from the European Union, it should have some clout and influence. The slight issue with this, and there's a sort of debate going on in the industry at the moment, is that the PEF has been influenced to an extent. It's aligned with the work of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which is a US body which is focused on sustainability in apparel and fashion. There are arguments that the SAC favours polyester and synthetic fibres and its scoring tool HIG favours synthetics compared to wool and cotton to a lesser extent. Although I welcome PEF to some extent, I would like to see natural fibres get a fair sort of crack of the whip where this tool is concerned. I believe it will go live in 2023, so I think there's going to be a lot of discussions before that and arguments, I guess, between the natural fibre sector and synthetics. And so I think that story is still playing out, really.
0: Why do you think that there is a move towards scoring synthetics better? Is it a recycling argument? What's going on here?
1: Yeah. Basically, the Higter it scores synthetics better and polyester better because it doesn't cover the full life cycle of production. So it doesn't take into account that synthetics are derived from petroleum. And so you've got all the issues around petroleum production, oil extraction, et cetera. And the tool for HIG doesn't cover that. Whereas with for natural fibres, with wool, for instance, it does cover the full life cycle. So you end, you end up with what some people believe to be a distorted score for fibres. According to Higg, polyester is the sort of most sustainable fibre on the planet, and natural fibres such as wool, silk, um, alpaca wool, etc., score quite poorly on this tool. There's a deep debate raging around that and, and, and whether it's right or wrong, whether we need better data, etc., etc.
0: Certainly it's an ongoing debate as to where it lies. I mean, if you had a closed-loop system for polyester, then I guess it would score very highly. But of course, we're not anywhere near that right now. What are you seeing then in terms of legislation? We've talked a little bit about the EU's new product environmental footprint label. How is that going to be introduced? And what else are you seeing in the UK and elsewhere?
1: Yeah, the PEF will be introduced around 2023. And it's important to say that this has been in the pipeline for several years. It will be a label on, on clothes, just telling consumers more about the clothing they're buying. And I'm guessing it'll talk about things like greenhouse gas emissions, It'll just try to give a ranking to clothing in terms of how sustainable clothing items are. I think the more interesting thing and the thing where it's a bit more clear what's going on at the moment is in the UK with the Competition Markets Authority. You know, they've not brought in any new legislation, but what they are saying is that the existing legislation around green claims, they're going to start enforcing it more. They're going to start holding fashion brands to account in terms of the claims that they are making. And given that the research so far on this has shown that so many of the claims are not justified and they're not proven, we could be in for quite an interesting time in 2022 when the CMA starts looking at what fashion is doing in this area.
0: I spotted Zolando CEO Robert Gentz in the Financial Times saying that the fast fashion model must be abandoned within 10 years. This is all part of the same discussion, isn't it? It needs to be abandoned because it isn't sustainable. Do you think that what Mr Gentz from Zolando says Is that realistic, do you think?
1: It's an interesting one. I've not seen the article. It's worth pointing out that a few years ago, another fast fashion company called H&M, they actually put out a statement in response to a journalist's question, and they said H&M is not a fast fashion company. I guess it depends how you define fast fashion. I think that's the key thing. Zolando might claim that they aren't a fast fashion company. It depends about definitions, really. I would treat that statement with a sort of pinch of salt for now. It comes out to semantics,
0: doesn't it? I mean, I think we all know what we mean by fast fashion it has become so prevalent within the apparel sector. Looking forward then, what will be the impact of the European product environmental footprint labelling when it comes in in 2023?
1: As it stands at the moment, I'm sort of in agreement with the Make the Label campaign, which has argued that as it stands, the PEF penalises natural fibre products. If it came in as it is in its present form, I would think it would be a negative for the industry because I think it would push consumers towards polyester products, which I don't think is a positive. If it can be reformed and give a fairer rating to all fibres, I'd say it could be a positive. But in its current guise, no, I don't think it is a positive for the industry.
0: Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see, but certainly the ongoing issues around substantiating the claims that the fashion sector makes, I think that's a story that's going to keep running. And Brett, perhaps you can come back and we can update about this in a few months. But Brett Matthews from Apparel Insider, thanks very much.
1: Thank you. Cheers. As well
0: as COP, coming up soon is Innovation Forum's biggest event of the year, our Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference from 30th of November to 2nd of December. It's going to be an exciting few days. To catch up with all the event news, earlier this week, I spoke with Innovation Forum's Narnie Brook-Adil. I'm joined by Narnie Brook-Adil, who's a Project Director of Innovation Forum's Landscapes and Commodities Conference, which is coming up from the 30th of November. Welcome back to the podcast, Narnie.
2: Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me again.
0: And you're joining me by phone. So, Narnie, tell me, how is the agenda coming together?
2: Yeah, really well. I think we're close to having a finished project now. We've got three days of so much fantastic content. Obviously, we're still trying to make it as digestible as we can for the audience. So we've got our first day plenaries for half a day, and then we've tried to condense days two and three as best as we can. But to be honest, we were absolutely packed this year. It's now a case of squeezing in the final one or two more speakers and we'll be good to go. Lots of really exciting projects to share, new platforms and things to learn about. We're also really lucky to have, I think, a record number of conference partners on board this year. So huge thank you to them for their support as well.
0: I know it's a constant dilemma, isn't it, between packing the days out with too many sessions that then there's more than is easily digestible for attendees. Of course, all the sessions will be recorded so everyone can go back and we'll be able to see and listen to the sessions that they miss. But it's certainly a very full three days. So tell me, who are some new additions to
2: the participant list? Uh, so we've had a few exciting speakers join us in the last couple of weeks, such as speakers from car Brazil, Jacobs Dow Egberts, the Kraft Heinz Company. We've got representatives from the Responsible Mica Initiative, or Maker Initiative, whichever way you like to say it, as well as a speaker from an Indonesian government association. So yeah, quite a few interesting additions to the speaker list recently. And we've also had delegates join us from Amazon, HSBC, PVH, Tetra Pak, loads and loads. I'm really excited to see so many teams uh, joining us together as well.
3: I'm certainly
0: looking forward to all the networking potential. There's so many exciting people coming to the event. There's going to be lots to talk about for sure. Are there any initiatives being launched at the event this year?
2: We actually do have a couple. So I wanted to highlight one session we have, which is the launch of SourceUp. SourceUp is an online platform that links agri-commodity companies with multi-stakeholder initiatives in producing regions, or compacts as they call them. So companies can use SourceUp to access relevant and verified data um, from their key sourcing regions for more sustainable sourcing at scale and to support projects relevant to their sustainability agenda. At the same time, we've got stakeholders in those producing regions can also use SourceUp to build coalitions for sustainable development at the landscape level, set shared sustainability goals and be recognised for their progress towards these goals. So within that session, I think that session we're joined by car 4 Brazil. Jacob Dowagberts and one other that escapes my mind but we'll be taking a deeper look into the platform and also asking the audience for their input on what their expectations would be from such a platform. So that's one of them. We have another session with Visuality and they are leading on something called the Langriffin Consortium. So Langriffin is supply chain sustainability software that enables companies to measure, analyse and plan so, mainly turning procurement data into accurate estimates of environmental impact and risk. They have a spatial sourcing model and analyze, track, and understand impact and risk and communicate these outwardly, as well as planning and forecasting impacts down the road. So, some really interesting initiatives launching there. I think they are both on day two, so keep an eye out for those ones. And yeah.
0: Looking forward to those. Um, it's always great to see people taking advantage of the buzz around the event to launch their own initiatives. Very exciting to see that. In sum total, then, what do you think people will take away from the event?
2: Obviously, at the moment, I think everyone's focused on COP, but I really want to highlight that that will be fed into this conference. So obviously, our, our first panel on day one is looking at key takeaways from COP and the regulatory environment going forward. But I think it really will be fed into many of the sessions. So it's almost like a debrief feeling. And I think a lot of topics will be brought up from that. Again, I think I've said this on our last podcast, but this is our biggest event of the year. So definitely a great opportunity to network with people. A big learning platform as well. As you said, they're all recorded. So you can use it long term.
0: Absolutely. It's a very useful resource. And let's just hope that there is some good news from the COP meetings that we can reflect on when we meet at the end of November. There's still discounted tickets available. If you're quick, if you book before the end of October, then you can save £75 on three-day conference passes. Narnie, look forward to the event and see you there if not before.
2: Perfect. Thanks, Ian
0: few weeks ago, I was privileged to host a webinar live from the Kasigau Corridor Red Plus project in Kenya. This Wildlife Works project protects over 200,000 hectares of dryland forest, an important ecosystem with rich biodiversity. And the emerging marketplace for Red Plus carbon offsets provides funds for the project to support social programs that impact around 120,000 local people. Coming up now are some highlights from the webinar.
4: The project supports social programs that impact around 120,000 local people and provides local communities with long-term jobs that have replaced unsustainable and destructive sources of income such as poaching, subsistence agriculture and illegal tree harvesting. The project was started in 1998 by Wildlife Works, an organization initially focused on solving human-wildlife conflict that has evolved to becoming a leading Red Plus program development and management company. The project uses the emerging marketplace for Red Plus carbon offsets to provide funds that enable the ongoing work to protect threatened forests and wildlife while supporting sustainable development for the local community. In other words, it's a market-driven solution to stop deforestation, protect wildlife, and improve local livelihoods. In 2011, the project was successfully validated and verified under the verified carbon standard and the climate, community, and biodiversity standard. It was then the world's first RED+ Plus project to receive issuance of carbon credits, and also the first verified carbon standard RED+ Plus mega project, in that it will result in the avoidance of over 1.5 million tonnes of emissions per year for 30 years. And the market for such offsets is rapidly growing. A new report from Ecosystem Marketplace predicts it will top $1 billion in 2021, increasing nearly 60% year on year. But this is still small in comparison to what will be necessary as the global economy decarbonizes. The Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets predicts that voluntary action through the carbon markets will lead to increase 15-fold by 2030 and 100-fold by 2050 from 2020 levels. To talk about how the project works and the impact it has made in local communities, I am delighted to be joined by Lenjo nguan Community Relations Manager, George Toonby, Agribusiness and Forestry Manager, Serafine Charo, Carbon Committee Representative, and Mercy Ngoroya founder of an environmental women's group, and Eric Sagwe, who is the head ranger. And our webinar today is supported by Everland. Many thanks to the Everland and Wildlife Works teams for helping to convene our panel, and to Innovation Forum's Anita Thompson. Let me turn to our panel in Kenya. A very, very warm welcome to you all. Lenjo, perhaps I can turn to you first. From your perspective, Lenjo,
3: please give a brief overview of the project and its aims. The aim of the HeadPlus project in Kenya was to reduce the impact of climate change through avoided deforestation and reduce emissions of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The drivers of deforestation are primarily charcoal production and slash and burn agriculture. The community used to depend on these activities as well as bushmeat poaching, but these activities are slowing down at the moment since the start of the Red Plus project. The project engages communities through sensitization and increased access to alternative livelihoods. Community consent must be really important in the project. Tell me a little bit more about how that works. There's a process called free prior-informed consent. This means giving information to the communities and getting consent from the community landowners before the project is started. All stakeholders must be involved from the big, from the beginning so that they understand how the project works and the benefits that are derived from the project. The process, it starts from introducing the project to the national and county government. And in national government is represented by the chief and assistant chief, then the local representatives. Then the second process is to engage the landowner communities and wider community leadership. This will include religious leaders, women leaders, youth leaders, people living with disabilities, council of elders. We also had wider community meetings In Kenya, we call them community barazas, and these are done in the villages. We also do some meetings and awareness to the schools. We have continuous engagement in order to keep the awareness consistent. So we do this through group discussions, using film shows, sports for the youth, workshops and seminars to different groups, including women and the youth. Tell me a bit about the governance structure of the project. Community funds are received through Wildlife Works Carbon Trusts, and under the trust, there's six different community locational carbon committees, one committee in each of the areas. This committee is elected after every two years, and membership consists of seven to nine members. The roles of the LCC, or the Locational Carbon Committee, includes receiving proposals from the community, making decisions on where money can be spent, and also deciding which projects can be done. Again, they also assist in doing sensitization to the community. We also do have subcommittees like Bursary Committee. This committee oversees Bursary Fund. They make sure that there is fair distribution to the needy students within the community. And then there is a community-based organization and community coordination offices. Both of these offices oversee implementation of the project after the LCC have made decision on where to spend the money. All activities are guided by the standard operating procedure that is made by all the stakeholders and is reviewed annually to exclude what doesn't work and to include what can work. It addresses benefit sharing mechanisms among all stakeholders and highlights monitoring and evaluation mechanisms. Let me turn now to George.
4: Lenjo mentioned some of the drivers of deforestation in your location. Could you talk a little bit more about what they are and some of the alternative activities that you've developed that preserve the forests? We have
5: deforestation and degradation in our location, driven by, what he has said, illegal logging for charcoal, fuel wood production, unsustainable subsistent agriculture, which is largely slash burn shift, including illegal grazing and overstocking. There is an element also of mining, construction, and all these are fueled by a lack of opportunity by the communities. It's a place that is semi-arid. Temperatures go very high. Currently, we are experiencing a heat wave where temperatures are going up to above 39 degrees. The rain is very little, so hardly 400. And, you know, a few years we've had rains, 30% of the annual rain coming in two days. So you can imagine there is uh, flash floods and a lot of destruction. The place is hilly with rock mountains. It's a place that is difficult for the community. It's also a hotspot area for human wildlife conflict. So World Life Works is here to mitigate, to help both the community and the forest. Before Wildlife Works, it was a lose-lose situation for the environment and also for the community. It was a very big conflict, which we are trying to address. What has different a multifaceted approach to resolving these issues, my colleague Eric will explain. He does the enforcement. That is one side. The other side of it is that we try to provide those lacking opportunities for the community in a number of ways. One of the ways is direct employment of community members. We have departments here. We have several departments. We have the department which I head, which is agribusiness and forestry. We have a fully-fledged workshop with mechanics and technicians of different expertise. We have our research team. We have our administrators. We have an EPZ a garment factory. Those people employed here couldn't be also harming the forest because they are busy working. They are gaining an income. Currently, we have 350 staff, all of us. It may not sound like a very big number, but it helps a lot because our researchers, we have a social scientist that visits homesteads and he has told us that his finding is that one job here helps at least 15 people. It has a ripple effect, and out of the 200,000, I think we get, if you multiply 350 by 15, which is very direct, we are helping a lot of people. To address these people employed, other than that, we also train community and support alternative income generating projects, like tree nurseries, where we support them, and we also are one of their customers. We have also supported, in conjunction with our partners, uh, agribusiness projects out in the community. There are women groups that are doing handmade art crafts and many other income-generating projects. That means people are also earning an income as an alternative to go into the forest because the only resource they have, people here have here is the forest and the animals that live in the forest. Those are two ways in which we mitigate. We also recognize the illegal logging and the poor agricultural practices as a serious problem. Charcoal burning is a major economic activity here. It is done in a very traditional way. I will start by explaining how it has been. Normally, people will cut the entire tree. We hear the power source and the axes. the trees come down, the entire tree is burnt into charcoal. But what we are training the community to do through the Chaco producers associations is to do, because we are not telling them they will never do their business, but they have to do it in a sustainable manner. We are teaching the community through the charcoal producers association how to do it in a sustainable manner to produce eco charcoal. So, eco charcoal concept of Kasiga Red Plus project is where you don't cut the whole tree; you you just prune the tips of the tree and you leave the tree intact, doing what trees do for all of us, and make charcoal. The trees will sprout again and they continue living. So that is, is what the alternative we are proposing to people, and we are also supporting makers of briquettes that they land at our eco-factory as another alternative source of income. Unsustainable subsistence agriculture is a big problem too. Traditionally, the community is farming, but like I said, the place is semi-arid, so even chances of growing a successful crop is very low. If I could describe how it was before we started and how it still is and what we are fighting, traditionally, you'll find somebody has moved from where they were, doing some agriculture and identified a place in the forest. They cut the trees, they do slash and burn, then they plow and the soil is left loose. And so when the agents of erosion come, which is water, wind, the soil is taken away. So the soil left is bare. If you fly our project now, it's very bare everywhere. And this is repeated year in, year out. So the solution that we are offering is conservation agriculture, where community integrate conservation aspects with the crop production. So first thing we tell them is stop deforestation, poor agricultural practices, stop slashing and burning, minimize plowing, substitute with restorative agricultural techniques and apply soil control measures. So we train the community on conservation agriculture. We have a unit here that demonstrates minimum use of water, for example, so that they can produce more per unit area using the little rain that comes their way. Crop rotation, shade the crop from direct sun, integrate trees with cropping, which is agroforestry, mulching, cover crops, plant climate-suited varieties, early planting, planting at the correct depth, and applying soil erosion techniques. Other than that, we're also training the, teaching the community about climate change, the threat it poses to the earth and its dwellers. The certification is, is a serious threat. We also tell them what the drivers of climate change are and the mitigation measures that we are taking and what they can even... Do as, as individuals.
4: Let
6: me turn to Seraphine now.
4: What's the process of choosing the projects that receive funding?
6: The process is very participatory and, as Lejo said, follows the laid down procedures called the standard operation procedure. The committee that is made of elected community representatives does receive a form that is called a concept note. This is a a felt need from a community. For example, they feel that they need some water tank somewhere. They will fill a concept form. And all the forms then taken over to the committee, the committee is able to get from the form the goals of the project, the activities that are going to be undertaken and a possible budget so that at that level, The committee is able to tell, depending on the funds that are available from the carbon credit, we're able to tell whether we can be able to fund that project. We also, from the activities, we can be able to say whether the project is viable in terms of conservation. The committee then makes a list of all the applications per each village. And after that, we do make uh, public barazas. Public barazas are village meetings that are organized through the administration so that they can be able to prioritize amongst the projects that they had chosen or they had applied for to the committee. So we join them, and through a guided discussion, they are able to prioritize the projects they had applied for. Most of the times, the projects are very many because the community needs also very high. Depending on the budget or the amounts of money that are available, we help the villagers and the villagers to be able to measure from the highest need to the lowest. And we make a list of every village according to the applications that they had made and the list of priorities. Once we get the list of priorities from the communities, we are able to sit again as a committee, look at the money that is provided for from the carbon credit, and be able to say the number of projects that can be undertaken at that particular time. So we again look at the community priorities, we are able to say, okay, now we can be able to undertake community proposal number one and two, and another community may be only number one because maybe their project is a bit high. We make sure that as a committee, most of the areas of the communities and their needs are charged by this fund. Once we get the <coughs> priority list and we know the number of projects that we are able to implement depending on the money, then the technical team does take that for project implementation. I would like to say that the community is involved at all stages. They even form their project management committee, which from the villages, they are able to oversee the implementation of their projects, whether they will be able to meet their needs as desired at application stage. This process is very participatory from the village level, by the communities from their felt needs, and by the committee. And this participation is very important because it gives the community a sense of ownership of the project. And therefore, they are able then to be able to take care of the project after it is completed, because it needs to be sustainable, it needs to take a good lifelong, and needs to do what it was intended for and therefore serve the community well. So this is the process that we go through as a committee to make sure that the community participates fully, And finally, the project, when it is handed over to them, they are able to take care of it and make sure that it serves them as they had requested.
4: What sort of projects do you
6: fund? These projects, for example, the basare, which is money that is given to poor kids to be able to get through their education else they could not, if they were not funded, and therefore we get an education community and poverty reduction through job creation. We also have projects that support schools' infrastructure, like construction of classrooms, construction of laboratories, staff rooms, and even renovation of some schools that have been dilapidated. Also, toilets. There are also water projects like water pans, water tanks that are able to supply water to the communities and help in the need of water. Water is life and the projects mostly done by this fund are very helpful to the community and especially women because women are the ones that have this struggle of looking for water. So their time is saved for other chores. And the women are always happy. At least they don't have to get tired like that. Other projects may involve even training for women empowerment to make sure that they are well informed in terms of conservation and even in leadership in their groups. There are various and varied ways that this project helps the community.
4: Let me turn now to Mercy. You're a women's environmental group. Can you give us a bit of insight as to how things have changed for your community? What was it like before the project started, for example?
7: When carbon came, in this community, we had a lot of problems, like schools. Most of the students could sit down. The classes were not enough. They could sit just under trees, and the teachers could teach just under the tree. The classrooms were not enough. We did not have enough toilets. Even students used to go to the same toilets with the teachers because there were no enough toilets. The classrooms, most of the other classrooms were not cemented. Some of them had rough cast. Students used to get jiggers and they used to get sick most of the time. There was no good education. The performance of school was very low because they were not comfortable. They could even go to school late and also they go and sit outside, especially when it's raining the students could not learn well. Some could just go to the corridors whereby the classes are of iron sheets and stay there. So they used to miss the classes because there were not enough classes. Also water, there was no water around. And even the students could carry water from their homes to school because there was no drinking water around. They could just come with bottles with water. They could not even wash their hands well. So on the health sector, most of the students, they were sick and they were not happy. So education level, when they do their exams, they were not doing well. They used to get low marks. Also women around, they had problems of water. Women could walk for a long distance, like 10 kilometers to go and look for water. They could even, some of the students could leave school and accompany their mothers to go and look for water. So they could not go to school, and that's why they failed their exams. Also, women did not have any trainings, so they could only go and look for firewood. They could go and look for water and also graze the cattle. They didn't have any experience of life because most of the women were not educated. Life was very hard here, and most of the people were not getting... Women could not even get employed anywhere.
4: That was then... Perhaps you can tell me a bit more about where we are now. How has the project helped your community?
7: When Carbon came, we were very happy. Students started with the students who were doing well, the vulnerable children, because most of the vulnerable children, when they did their exams, they could not get school fees because this is a married area. Most of the times we we planned, but we don't get anything. Over the vulnerable children didn't go to school. And when the Carbon came, they could get the bursaries, they could go to secondary school, after secondary school, they could even go to college because they started now receiving the bursary and the education changed completely. We are very, very happy because most of them are just even employed around here, around Wildlife Works. Others have got to work in different companies. Life is not the same. It is different. Also, we are happy because After getting these uh, bursaries and the students are doing well, we are happy because we have one of the students who did very well and we have a pilot in our community. We are very proud because they have been supported and they have been trained and they've got the, the work and now is giving back to the community. On the side of women, women have been trained through Hadithi craft, Hadithi CBO, and now they are making very nice baskets they are trained because of poverty. There is no poverty now anymore. It's decreasing because before they couldn't make any baskets. Nowadays, they can sell the baskets, help their children. They pay school fees. And also they are making even kitchen gardens because they are trained through Aditi. They can make their kitchen gardens whereby we have no nutrition in the community. We have the kitchen gardens whereby we can get good vegetables and our community is feeding well. So most of the groups make those gardens and they are doing very well. And also women are employed. They are employed in different places like also, and they are doing their own businesses. Most of them have started small shops and they are happy and they are selling baskets and they are weaving. So women are very happy. Life has really changed. Although we have a long way to go, so we need also to continue doing whatever we are doing. But at least women now can do something. It's not like before.
4: Thank you so much, Mercy. That's fantastic insight as to how things have changed since the project started. Eric, you are head ranger, obviously playing a vital role in ensuring the project's success. What do you and your colleagues do to protect the forests and work with the local
8: communities? So Wildlife Works rangers use various modes to make sure that the forest and wildlife are protected. We do patrolling. We provide security for wildlife within the project area. We protect the natural resources. We carry out biodiversity monitoring for just measuring the impact. As part of our work, we also do education awareness to engaging local communities in conservation. We also do respond to human wildlife conflicts cases. We enforce rules and regulations in our area of operation. We also conduct investigation and make fiscal arrests if needed. Sometimes we carry out firefighting as well as response units to the members of the community. Sometimes wildlife works rangers do search and rescue missions. The area where we are operating is fast, and sometimes members of the community have been losing uh, their livestock, and they have been using the project area as a shortcut to pass those illegal livestock. So we have been applying security within the area. All of this we do in cooperation with other security partners, such as the Kenya Wildlife Service, which is our mother, and also we incorporate our other conservation partners, such as the Sheldricks uh, Wildlife Trust, especially for veterinary work, and the Savo Trust, and the Save the Elephants.
4: Perhaps give some insight into
8: challenges you faced before the project. Before the project, some of the challenges we faced were that the rate of poaching was very, very high. We had a lack of some resources with a huge area to efficiently monitor there were also uncontrolled entry points with a lot of illegal movements and illegal activities. How have things changed? Yeah, currently we have seen a drastic reduction on commercial poaching and habitat destruction cases. We have more ground and air teams available to do canning of all the area within a very short time. We have more resources for ranger equipment and for the ranger training. Fortunately, we have permanent response unit to human wildlife conflict. We also have improved communication and engagement with the members of the community. And we have improved joint operations and patrols with other security organs. So that's what we have as of now. And what are your hopes for
4: going forwards?
8: The hopes we have for the future is continuous improvement of ranger equipment and the ranger training. Improving accessibility to areas with the poor road network, as you understand, in the bush, from one point to another point, if we don't have roads, the accessibility to get into the incident is very, very difficult. Without proper road network, we cannot manage. And also, lastly, is uh, the enhanced community engagement and the outreach programs with my brother Lenjo.
4: One thing I was fascinated to learn about your ranger service is that you are all unarmed, aren't you? You don't carry firearms, that's
8: correct, isn't it? Yes, I operate a team which is not armed. Yeah, The rangers that we have in Wildlife Works, most of them they emanate from the community, the surrounding villages within the project area. These men and women, actually, they give a lot of sacrifice to nature. When they are doing their patrols, they face a lot of things. And the reason as to why we are not harming our rangers is one. Since they emanate from the Roko community, when you give them arms, we are going to lose a lot of information from the members of the community because we depend, the members of the community give us information on our daily programs. Number two, if we harm our rangers, it means that we are not sincere because for number one, when you carry arms, you distance yourself from the members of the community. Number two, if you are harmed and you are doing your normal patrols within uh, the project area, it means that the culprits who will be coming in will be more harmed than you. And the danger of having harms, sometimes it might lead to a lot of deaths to our department that we don't want. Since now that we are operating within the members of the community and they know we are not harmed, We are not using any force to them because the project's primary thing is we are not supposed to use force to the members of the community. All we are supposed to do is to work amicably with the members of the community with understanding that the project actually is supposed to cater for the members of the community more.
0: As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews, and for discounted tickets for the Landscapes and Commodities Conference from the 30th of November. There won't be a weekly podcast for the next fortnight, as I'm going to be in Scotland, reporting daily on what's going on at the COP26 meetings in Glasgow. So do look out for those podcasts next week. And if you're attending the meetings, do get in touch. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week in Glasgow, goodbye.